Alright, alright. 5 p.m. East Coast. Our guest today is coming from the West Coast. Welcome everybody to a special edition of Live from the Compound. We are so excited to talk to Ben Smith today. Ben is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a global news company. Ben is a former media columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. Ben just released his book, Traffic, which focuses on digital media in the 21st century. Ben Smith, how's life? How's everything? It's good. It's good, Josh. Thanks for having me on. You didn't even mention that, like you, I'm basically a blogger. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of us started as bloggers, and now we talk into microphones, but it's almost the same thing, right? More or less, yeah. E- equal More. lack of editing. Do you remember, uh, total aside, when, when was the last time I saw you? I think we went out to dinner with like 10 financial bloggers, something like that, oh. during the BuzzFeed days. You guys yeah, were launching BuzzFeed right. Business. You remember yep, that? That sort sounds of? right. Yep. Okay. Vaguely. Uh, all right. Rings the bell. <laughs> I know. It's, I know. It's a long time ago. Okay. So first of all, the book is out, and I know you're doing a lot of media around the book, and I really wanted to just have you on and talk to our audience. And our audience is kind of the intersection of financial uh, services, asset management, trading, investing, and then, of course, financial media. So it's like a, a wide range of people, but everything is you know business-related for the most part that we do on the channel. And to some, to some extent, your book is a media story, but it's also a business model story. Could you talk a little bit yeah, about right. um, what, what drove you to write Traffic? Why now? Why is it so relevant to what we're, what we're living through these days? I mean, I guess, you know, I was, I, I sort of started out, you know, on the internet in the early 2000s as a local political reporter um, and, you know, came to BuzzFeed in 2012, left in 2019 or 2020, I guess, with a feeling like, huh, like this feels like a whole moment is coming to an end of the sort of sense that the internet was this rising new thing that was going to displace legacy media and, and, you know, and I, you could sort of feel that winding down in a way, in a confusing way, actually. And I think from my perspective, it was sort of interesting to go, like, what happened? Like, what did we all just live through? What happened? Where did it begin? I mean, that was really the sort of impetus to write the book. My personal opinion, and, you know, I think your book confirms some of this, is that it was a confluence of 0% interest rates after the great financial crisis and um, the, the rise of the mega social media platforms like Facebook and, you know, Twitter and maybe to a lesser extent, LinkedIn and some of the others. Um, but I feel like you had this really great combination at that time of very cheap equity capital uh, and a brand new way to distribute content. And all of these uh, relatively young media companies came along and they seized upon a lot of the dynamics they were able to get a lot of people to buy in and and invest equity in businesses that didn't necessarily produce profits uh, and maybe profits weren't even on the horizon. Um, and they were taking advantage of the social engineering that was built into these platforms. Do I do I kind of have the broad strokes yeah, I mean, of the I story right? On the on the business story, right? I think there were these basically entrepreneurs experimenting at what was a fairly small scale and building smallish businesses. Gawker, I mean, Gawker was a profitable small business from the start. Okay. BuzzFeed was not. BuzzFeed was sort of a laboratory that was losing other people's money. Um, right. But, and then you and then you saw, that. but they were building on this growing digital space, right? And the space was growing with them. And then when particularly Facebook exploded, 
they they suddenly started growing really, really fast. And actually, you know, again, BuzzFeed was profitable in 2014. I remember I was there then, and it was it, we were told that was like a mistake that you shouldn't be yeah. profitable, that you should be focused. Means on you're growth. underinvesting. Yeah, you should be investing <laughs> instead of paying taxes, basically. Um, and you know, because that and and I think the question, the question that I sort of am. I don't know, a little hung up on now because I've been talking to a lot of people about the book and it's something that I think isn't really resolved in the book was like, were we and our investors totally delusional from the start that there could ever be a lucrative business here? Or was it just a bet that didn't break that way? And the bet, just to remember, because it's sort of hard to put your head back into this space, but the bet was that just as cable had come up in the 80s and and the, and the people who laid the cable wires, you know, they could have said, we're going to have market it, we're, we're going to not pay anybody to produce content, we're going to take advertisements, and we're going to take um, user generated content. But instead, they thought like, huh, like we got to, like, we're going to be competing with other forms of media. So we're going to create a ecosystem where these ESPN, CNN, all those MTV make tons of money. And that comes ultimately out of the cable operators margin. But right. it was worth it to them and it paid off. And the bet was for that we made was that Google, Facebook, Twitter would follow that, would sort of be forced competitively to follow that same trajectory, that they'd be competing with each other and with everything else to have higher and higher quality content. And the people who could do quality professional content that was totally also purpose built for that kind of platform would build big right. businesses. When I say it now, it doesn't sound totally delusional, insane. Obviously, in retrospect, it was a disaster, did not work out that way. Maybe was never going to work out that way, but just to sort of like, just so that people don't think your listeners don't think we're total morons. That at least was right. what we were thinking. Maybe they'll still when be you total say, morons. When you say purpose built, so from a BuzzFeed standpoint, uh, really catchy headlines, lists, which Disney princess are you? Um, and I know you guys did serious reporting, uh, especially politics and and media and uh, and markets. Um, and I had met a lot of the BuzzFeed business reporters over the years. But like, just very, very catchy. That's what you mean by purpose built. Yeah, I mean, some of it was very catchy. But I mean, specifically, like you go into it thinking, not what what can I fill my website with? Or what can I put in my newspaper? But what's the kind of stuff people are going to share? And the answer to that right. question can be really different. Like we did a, a, a video a daily hour, live hour on Twitter that was like, totally integrated with like, we was, you know, like the scandals we were talking about would be the scandals that were happening on Twitter. Like we were programming right. intrinsically for these platforms. And yeah, and in Facebook, if people wanted to share quizzes that were often connected to identity, actually, like, you know, like in a way, it's the which Disney princess are you? And then you share it because you're that Disney princess, Josh. You are, in fact, you know, I don't know. You're almost like giving, you giving people a souvenir. They spend 30 seconds of yeah. their time on the content and then they have a souvenir that they want to share with other people. That they which... want to show their friends. And that's how we were thinking. And, and, every, and in a way, like, like both the content that seemed very smart and the content that seemed very dumb was in some sense kind of reverse engineered around what do, what do people want to share? Because if that's the way that content is distributed. Michael, I, I forgot what Disney princess you ended up being. Um, but do you want to, I'm do you want to jump I'm in Jas here? Yeah, I'm you Jasmine. Jasmine. Okay. Ben, as you look back... As you look back on the era that we just lived through, and it does feel like the end of an era in, in several ways, when you look back and say, all right, the end was when Elon, arguably one of the worst purchases of that magnitude of all time, or would it be interest rates going from zero to five, zero percent to 5% and all of a sudden the willingness of venture capitalists to, to lose other people's money, 
people willing to provide that capital to venture capitalists to lose their money. Uh, and I know that wasn't the goal, but what would you, when we look back on this period of time, what do you think is going to be the end? You know, I think those were punctuation marks, but that it was sort of already over. Like Twitter had huge, was, I think Twitter had big problems and was sort of culturally in decline before Elon came in and he's made some mistakes. But, it, but I think that once a social network starts, goes out of fashion, these are social institutions. They're like nightclubs. Like there's not, it's not, that's not a fixable problem. It's a culture. It's not a tech. I heard you problem. say that somewhere else. What do you mean by that? Like a, a club you is go cool. To, you go to a social network because your friends are there and you go to a club because your friends are there or a bar because your friends are there. And if your friends aren't there anymore, like they can't, this, the new ownership isn't going to like put in a better sound system and everybody goes back. It's just, that was where you went left when you were in your thirties and now you're in your forties or whatever. And the younger kids don't want to go where you went before. They want to go somewhere new. And it's just like, and I just think that, that to a degree that we certainly, I didn't really anticipate I think that we'll look back and say, oh, yeah, like Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, a lot of these platforms were places went, people went in the 2010s. Not that they will totally go away. Like Reddit, I think, is a great example of a social network that has held on to its place in the world, but not really its central, not a kind of central cultural status or influence. Um, and and you, they could certainly, be, Twitter could, I think, certainly find some space like that. I wonder if, if Twitter was the disco ball and disco just is not cool anymore. And something that was really emblematic of what Twitter has become, maybe always was, happened this week. Last night or the night before, the New York Times published an article about Elizabeth Holmes, which I did not read, but I saw a lot of people getting quite upset with the image. Liz Holmes wants you to forget about Elizabeth. The black turtlenecks are gone. So is the voice. As the convicted Theranos founder awaits prison, she has adopted a new persona, devoted mother. And so... Ben, you know better than anyone that there are people who write the articles and there are people who write the headlines and the people that write the headlines might have different motivations. And so Twitter went f***ing nuts as it always does. And then Benedict Evans came out with a sober voice and said, am I the only person that thought that the New York Times Elizabeth Home piece is a masterpiece? It doesn't quite say that she's a lovely, sweet person. It says she was a very good at playing the CEO character. And now she's very good at playing the lovely, sweet person character with quotes around that. The journalist doesn't actually say I like her. She says this convicted fraudster is extremely good at deliberately and consciously persuading me to like her. And so the point is that no, nobody read the piece. They just get fucking crazy because it's like the New York Times is, is yeah. siding with white collar criminals. And I do think that 10 years ago when that exact thing happened because it happens every week or two weeks that like somebody takes a screenshot and everybody reacts to the screenshot and it's kind of a fun narrative. That like the that the New York Times might respond or be like, oh, maybe we should have some concerns about our journalism and that but this is just some like it's like when it's like a it's like a reflex action of like a dead body. You know, like this is just what Twitter does. And and right, I mean my reading on this piece was 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 Benedict's. Like this is a like dryly savage portrait of a con artist <laughs> that is letting her hang herself with her own words. Well, who were people like, mad at? The the author of the article? Yeah, people get mad itself. at the author of the article, but I they're think mad at the themselves. Like, they're mad at themselves. Let's be honest. But nobody no, really. Know, but, but I think this sort of thing nobody really cares about. But to go in a way that they used to really care, like lose sleep over. My, um, to to just go back to your previous question, because I, I I do think like in writing the book, what I, much more clearly when I was writing it than I felt it at the time. I think that there was like a political cultural shift around Trump's election, that where the whole trajectory of like this new internet media became toxic to advertisers became sort of for a lot of consu- pretty like disturbing and unpleasant for lots of consumers, the sort of core right. of what we were selling at BuzzFeed, which is like, there's this new cool thing called the Facebook news feed. And we're giving, and we're like intrinsic to it. And we're giving you news and we're giving you fun quizzes. And like, it's all mixed up together. Like, isn't that fun in the Trump era? Like, doesn't feel so fun. 
and because that was I, weaponized I that, that that same like like you you could you could hijack it if I'm not saying yeah, BuzzFeed it just became did, but a place that everybody was screaming at each other about toxic politics and like who wants to be there. I mean, it's funny. One of our like one of like our real theses at the beginning, like BuzzFeed's initial slogan was "No haters," and which didn't totally fit the journalism, and we slightly backed away from. But um, but it really there was this thesis that you know maybe in like the privacy of the Google search engine, you will be looking for all sorts of dark and horrific stuff, but in the public space of social media. You're going to be your best self because you're going to want people to see that you're a person who like cares about earthquake. You would assume. You would assume. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Could we have? Could that have been wronger? Right. And that like. But you. But honestly, like, it was a real thing. Like, who would go onto these public platforms and scream like a lunatic about politics? Like, who does that? Who would do that? That would get you thrown out of the dinner party. And yeah, it turns out that is. Yeah, it turns out everyone does that. And those days. Yeah. Ben, I well. think I think the the social network where people are the, their best selves. I think does exist. It's the most boring, unexpected one. But LinkedIn, to me, like if I had to bet which of these is still a thing in 10 years, LinkedIn, there are financial incentives to not be an asshole, like your whole future. And it seems that people are the most incented by just the way the platform is structured and the purpose of the platform and yeah. I would I would bet LinkedIn over Facebook or LinkedIn oh, even yeah. over Instagram. LinkedIn is obviously thriving, and I do think that the thing about these networks is that once they start falling apart, I can't really think of an example of one that has pulled out of that spiral. Ben, do you think things would have turned out differently had Disney in an alternate universe bought Twitter, which was probably not going to happen, but at least they entertained it? I mean, I think that if if you if I mean, I, I find it hard to even imagine this because I like loved, or as I'm sure you guys did. Like, I am a total junkie. I love Twitter. I still go on there and like it, and I'm sad. That I like, used, it doesn't I used really to work for me anymore. But Guilty, like, right? Yeah, like I'm not, and I, and the notion for me that this social network where like journalists and public figures can like exchange information could could go on forever. Like, I like that. That's what I thought it was. So, but I think that if you could go back and tell Anthony Noto, whoever was running Twitter in like 2015 and show them what's happening now, they would have said, huh, like maybe pivoting it into being some kind of media company is not the worst alternative, even though it would be, have been such a nightmare for the valuation. But ultimately, had they become a place where you got quality journalism and quality entertainment of certain kinds of sorts and you paid for it, like maybe that would have been a functioning business, which is not a thing they have ever found and now seems too late. I mean, that's not too yeah, they I don't become a sports game. They could be. I mean, I still think sports is super fun on Twitter and you could see them becoming a great sports gambling business like God bless. But um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know how that tailspin ends either. And to your point, I can't think of a site that was really popular, then went into decline and then had some sort of a resurgence. I'm sure there is an example that I'll think of at some point, but I, I can't really think of one. And that thing seems to be imploding. I think what's interesting about it imploding is. It's not because some competitor came along. And that's the history of social media to me is that something is hot and then there's the next thing. There is no next thing. It feels like an NUI. Uh, what, hmm. what am I missing? Like, like Mastodon is not happening. Blue Sky no. is still in beta. Like what, yeah, I mean, what is the I mean, next the simplest, thing? I mean people like us, like nerds who like to read text and numbers sometimes forget TikTok. But TikTok is massive. That's the next. So that's taken from of- Twitter? Certainly taken time that people, yeah. 
you know, but so, but I think also like, I don't know, I was just like watching Mrs. Davis on Peacock during time that I should have been on Twitter, right? Like every right. form of media is competing with everything else. I think people are just kind of over social media. I'm in like a text group that has sort of re- on signal of all things that has kind of replaced Twitter for me a bit. I just think people, I just think the notion that a social network like Twitter like and, I, and any social network, like I think that Blue Sky is like kind of slick technically. Um, and I've been playing around with that, but ultimately, like all the same maniacs who were making Twitter annoying are now there and making it annoying because it's that culture of social media that I think I'm sort of tired of and want to do something different. Yeah, I, I think, think the one- quote the quote tweet was the worst thing to ever happen to our society. Oh, uh, just quote the dunking. Tweet. Some people think it was some. Pe- I mean, you know, one of the things I read about in the book is you know the the reblog, which became which. It actually is like, I think there is an argument if you want to like talk about like where everything went wrong. I didn't really make this argument in the book, but Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, one of his claims to fame is that he was like tinkering around and created this idea of reblogging, of having a blog that was able to sort of post somebody else's blog within the system. And this guy, Dave Karp, who he was working with or knew, basically he wound up at Tumblr with Dave Karp, who put it into, you know, where Tumblr was the first place to implement that you know, now totally intuitive, technical um, feature. And it then went to every other site. And I do think right. that like that, that is sort of where you get virality and this kind of impulsive, massive, fast sharing. The hit, hit, hit and, and the hit and runs that come from that. And that, I remember yeah, when and, it was- and, and stuff you would, traveling you would outside retweet the manually. Intended. Yeah, and stuff remember? traveling outside. Yeah, RT. Right, and, it, right. Like, and also like stuff traveling outside the context where it was expected and- that, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think that there, that is certainly a, like a, if you're looking at kind of like technical features that made us all insane, that's certainly. I want to ask you, I want to ask you about a phenomenon them. that's fascinating to me where you have this new thing comes along. It's white hot. Everybody creates their profile. Everyone's, everyone's talking about it. Clubhouse. And then it, and then it just like comes and goes just as fast. And two examples that come to mind. Clubhouse is obvious. It was like a creature of the pandemic. And maybe it got too hot too fast and it got polluted with a lot of terrible content. And then the other one is Vice, which you wrote about in your book. And um, are, is that the same kind of thing where just something is just too hot and it can't possibly sustain that level of interest? Or is there something else going on there? No, I, mean, I think it was pretty different, right? Like Clubhouse, as you say, just was like everywhere for 10 minutes and was really fun during the pandemic. But really it was just it was a feature. Right. And Twitter absorbed right. it as a feature. And, it came, and maybe once a month you want to be on some live audio thing like that. I don't know. On the social platform you're already on, maybe. Um, but but not. Yeah, but it didn't sort of sustain a community. Um, and I agree with you. When, when we were allowed to go outdoors again, it sort of lost some of its appeal. I mean, Vice is something different. Vice is really interesting because Vice was like is a great brand. Like, you know, like you and I, like we know what it stands for. It really stands for something for a certain kind of like, at least for like men of our age, like a certain kind of yeah. like Gen X cool thing. Um, and it was it never, Gen, was it Gen it, X-y though? Or was it was it oh, like yeah. millennially? I feel like uh, Vice is like grungy Gen news. X-y. Yeah, Shane, Cause, Shane's got cause like a big white anal- beard. That's Gen yeah, X. My analog to, to for Vice was like, oh shit, this is the new MTV. And yeah, it had Tom, a shot. That's exactly what it was. And Tom Freston was the chairman of the company who created MTV. And it was like, but, it totally, but it never, the thing was, it was, it was the, the pure, it's really, I mean, they, it was this pure brand. And they written and some of their, and they made not that much content, but it was really good. Some of those early documentaries were amazing and they were so in the zeitgeist. The ISIS, the ISIS really, stuff felt, ground, yeah, felt groundbreaking. But they never, 
they never really had a business that was that sort of like they, they you know they, their website never really got traffic in the way that others did they never had a big digital business they had an ad agency they um and then the big the business that they finally really did build was a production business they produced a tell a nightly news show for hbo but that's HBO, yeah i mean production company like that's a tough business because you're a production company with one customer and then your customer cancels the contract and you're out of business and that's basically what happened to them i went i went there in brooklyn and i taped um I taped Jesus and Mero before they were on Showtime. So it, I remember looking around and being like, this show seems so huge. And the production value here seems so like minimalist. I was, like, yeah, really, no, they, I was really surprised by that. They were just like in a conference room, right? No, but they, that was like a great example. Like, what a, like those are two funny men and they had a great feel yeah, for the, the Zeitgeist. really did have this great feel for the Zeitgeist. But they never... But they, you know, they've gotten like a five billion dollar valuation that required, like it just it never made sense how, where their revenue, what their business was, which I think was so ben, true of various of these companies. One of the threats to this conversation, and certainly media just writ large over the last decade, is it's competing for eyeballs is a difficult business, whatever the business model is. So you started Semaphore, I think wisely, you decided not to take venture money. Uh, talk about like. What the what opportunity did you see to create this new platform and a new way of distributing news with new styles and all that sort of stuff? What's the idea? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's one of the things that both I thought about a lot in doing the book and then when I was at the Times for a couple of years, like throwing stones at everybody else's glass houses, is just, you know, how these moments of really dramatic change, there are, these, there are opportunities. And I think, you know, that was true in the early 2000s when we were all so sick of just like being stuck with the same two newspapers and three television outlets. And suddenly there was this incredible profusion of like every newspaper in the world and every insane person in the world on their blog. You could just read them. And now I think it's almost like consumers are in the opposite place. Like we're all just drowning in incoming and don't know who to trust. And so the service you can do and by the way, this is why I think why people connect with shows like this is this sense of like, here's a person you can trust who's speaking in their own voice, who kind of knows the difference between a fact and their opinion, and who's, who's, who is maybe bringing the, some of their, their own news, but also synthesizing a lot of what's out there and giving you some guidance through the chaos of, of this sort of late social media. And so like, that's really what we're trying to do. Like we hired great reporters whose like names people know, who they... And the reporters in this very stylized way say, "Here's the here are the facts. Here's my opinion. Here's room for disagreement from somebody who disagrees. And here's some other stuff to read on the same topics. So you don't need to do this thing that I feel like a lot of people do, where you read an article, even in a publication you like, and then you Google the subject and find five more articles so you can like triangulate what really happened. And right. so we're trying to sort of build for this particular weird moment. Yeah, it is a weird moment because something is ending. The new thing hasn't yet started." Maybe you guys are part of the new thing. Right. I, I totally get that. Um, I find it interesting how quickly we can come to trust a new media venture just by virtue of liking the presentation. And for, like for me, Axios is a great example. I like, like one day it didn't exist and then the next day it existed. And then the day after that, I'm like subscribed to it and I just like it. And so because I like the way they do things, I'm like an Axios reader. If they stop publishing it tomorrow – I would just be reading something else. Nothing would really change in my life, but like that's how quickly a new media venture can just become part of people's lives. Uh, I, I, fi I find that kind of thing fascinating. Um, you're probably banking on people in a place right now where they just want to try something new. 
Is that like a big part of the appeal, do you think, yeah. in the early days? Well, I mean, I think it's certainly like it's a part of the opportunity, right? I mean, it doesn't get, you know, it is a moment when you, if you ask people, hey, do you like love the news you're getting and think it's great? Like mostly no, they hate it. And that is certainly a moment when you can say, hey, try this. It has to be good though. Like it has to then really deliver and be thoughtful and clear and efficient and all the things that you need it to be. I mean, that's that only, you know, the opportunity only gets you so far. Do you have do you to got- cover a lot of, I'm sorry, Michael, do you have to cover like a lot of ground in order to be a source? Or can you be like, dialed in specifically on just a few topics and do them really well? Like, what does a modern media company have to do? Um, I mean, I think there's, it's such a splintered environment now. Like, I don't think, I mean, we would certainly love to be, to grow into being all things to all people. And I think if you care about certain subjects, we're, we're pretty close, um, you know, about tech, finance, politics, or maybe not tech, maybe AI, finance, politics, like we're pretty dug in. But I think that we assume that we're not the only news organization someone is reading. And I think that's actually like a big Achilles heel for places like the New York Times, that they they sort of assume that their reader only reads the New York Times. And so they're going to give you right. 17 New York Times articles in their email, you know, even if there's maybe some good stuff in the FT that day or whatever. And so like, <laughs> right. yeah, I think, but, I, but I, I mean, we're also, I mean, certainly something I learned to BuzzFeed is like, we're not going to, we're going to try not to bite off more than we can chew and not, not grow too fast. Okay. So you got you guys are doing a lot with just back to basics using the inbox, email blasts. What about Amazing, other forms right? of back to basics? What about other forms of communication, podcasts, videos, things like that? Is that down the road? Yeah, or we're doing a, never... we're, we're doing a lot. We're doing a lot of video. Um, Joe Posner, who created uh, Explained at Vox, is, is heading up video for us. Um, and and events have been really big for us. It's like the most in person like in person. Yeah, in person media mm-hmm. journalism. It's been really good for us. Um, and, uh, and you know, and obviously we're on the web because the web does still exist. But I kind of agree with you and you say, like, we haven't figured, like, what's the next thing is still sort of nascent. I mean, I think there's this sort of interesting energy around what I think of as kind of Asian-style aggregators, like Smart News and Newsbreak, which are not things I necessarily consume. But you see the uh, old Instagram guys started this thing called Artifact that is trying to be like a... I wanted to ask you about Artifact. So I have two news... Of, of different publishers. I don't, I don't know. It feels a long way off, honestly. But I do think... I, I don't know. I do think that, 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 that we're in the very early stage of something new. So I have two news sources. I left Twitter three years ago this month. Um, and I have two, two like primary, other than my subscriptions directly to things. I use Google News which mm-hmm. is super old school, but it yep. works great. And they've improved the product and there's no, no one's opinion. It's just literally here are stories based on stories you've clicked on before. Great. It's an algorithm. Here are your topics. And that's, that's fu- I don't need all of the opinion and the fighting around this. I just want to know <laughs> what's happened. So that's one. And then I started using artifact and they're going to let you follow other people's posts of articles there which sounds like it has the potential to transcend just a news gathering app, but yeah, it's, but it I, seems very early. And I worry that they have, I can sort of see little signs that they have this eternal Silicon Valley fantasy that they're going to ultimately rely on user-generated contact and content instead of these annoying media companies that want to charge you for their okay. work. And, it, okay. and to me, that's just obviously a path to irrelevance. Okay. I don't know if this is the first time that journalists have an alternative way to make money, obviously Substack and the like, how, is there like a war for talent and how do you compensate people in a way that like, I don't know, it gives them some skin in the game and or makes them like not just a carousel. 
because obviously how, how, do you, is, how do you keep them if, if they can right. say, you know what, I have a thousand fans that'll pay me $10 a month. That's, yeah, that's what I'd rather do. true fans, the old internet dream. Um, yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think from my perspective, that's like, I think about that all the time. And, and for certain kinds of journalists, like Andrew Sullivan say, like if you're, you know, the, if you, if what you can do is, is write, you know, really thoughtful essays and a regular schedule that a huge following wants to hear from Matt Iglesias, and you're not really probably doing that much original reporting, but you're sort of, you know, but you, like you can go out on your own and really do incredibly well now in the subscription yeah. world. There's a category of reporter, which I'm in, which is like we like to like break news. And that maybe take means that like one week I'm writing about Disney and one week I'm writing about some other random thing you don't care about, even though you do care <laughs> about Disney. And, you know, you're sort of following the news cycle and it's and 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 you also require like legal support and editors and a brand that sometimes you can hide behind when you get into fights with people. And yeah. You know, and yet you also do want that direct connection with an audience that Andrew Sullivan might have. And I think for that kind of breaky, hard news beat reporter, we're trying. That's really we're trying to create sort of the best of both worlds for for someone like that. I think you know Liz Hoffman, who's in, in you know covers covers finance for us, is certainly an example of that. Where, you know, she's writing under her own name in her own voice, um, connects very directly to an audience, but also has. So that, you know, and, and, you know, and we do give equity to our writers. And so like has hopefully the upsides of being on your own, particularly, I think that ability to like have that very direct connection to an audience, but at the same time, and to be like a human being who people can trust. But at the same time, we have a great newsroom. And I think that's something that, you, that the reason that you don't see that kind of reporter going out on their own much is because it's not really a solo sport in the end. Yeah, you need some support from a from a, a company. You need somebody behind you, especially yeah. if you're breaking news and you're digging into places that yeah, other you're people getting don't into want fights. you to you're be. You're getting into really fi- big fights with powerful people occasionally, and and yeah. So I mean, that, the kind of reporters I think that you're, if you're looking at who we've, you know we're hiring, whether it's her, Reed Albergati, who's covering Miss AI for us out there, Dave Weigel in Washington, like really great reporters who have big followings, but also. You know, are working in a way that it's a that, that that doesn't quite fit the subset stack model. What do you think an investor audience like ours can get out of your book, Traffic? What what are like some of the takeaways or some of the areas that you explore that would be really interesting to people who allocate capital or well, take I risk? Any, I would hope anybody reading this would say, "Wow, that guy Ben Smith! I should invest in anything he does because okay. his management of BuzzFeed was so brilliant." Um, <laughs> the uh, no. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I actually think that people are going to, I see people taking this lesson that like digital is terrible and news is terrible and media is terrible because this ended badly. I mean, I think it's always easier to say that after the fact and that what I see are like that the choices that were made by executives, both at the media and the tech companies, you know, chose a path that, that really did screw these companies, but that wasn't necessarily predetermined. Um, but I do think that media in particular, it's just not a business that venture cap that should be taking venture capital. It's not oh, that's gonna interesting. deliver I mean they still will. It's not gonna deliver, you know, a thousand X returns in four years. Like that kind of stuff, like that kind of explosive growth. It doesn't make sense. And I think I think like certainly at Semaphore, you know, we're you know, we've raised money, but from people who understand the business, who are, we think, going to be patient. You know, Justin and I have sort of shaken hands that we're in it for 10 years. Um, right. And 
and I think and I think news and again media, media news is really a subset of media news is a weird business of its own like it can be a really good business people want it if you do it well advertisers want to be associated with people subscribe to it I mean, there's ways to turn it into a really good business but it's a it's but it's not a easy it's not it's not easy money it's not the it's not the it's not a thousand x return overnight kind of business and and I think I think it was a mistake for people to think it could be. Um, are we are we in an advertising recession right now? I don't know. Like half the people I talk to think we are, and half think we aren't. And I think when I was just talking to the um, the CMO at one of the biggest countries companies in the country, who was like, "Yeah, I don't know. Like we haven't we haven't like cut our spending yet, but we're like having a meeting every day to decide whether we will." Um, I mean, I think I think everybody like you is looking at the economy and scratching their heads and trying to like figure out what the hell is going on and very confusing. making decisions. But it definitely, I mean, it makes me super nervous. Um, I wanted to end with uh, the reckoning happening at Fox news and CNN. And obviously these aren't, you know, digital media, they have digital media arms, but these, this, that's like big media is, yeah. is, is kind of like, uh, late social media phenomenon is that playing into that, or is that kind of its own thing that's happening for I mean, other this reasons? This is just me, like you know, saying zeitgeisty stuff because it feels that way. Though I don't have evidence, but I'm curious what you think. I mean, sure, feels to me like these figures who blew up in the in an era when conflict drove engagement, drove views. You know, on Facebook, on cable news, Tucker, Don out- Lemon. Yeah, yeah, Tucker and Don, who are very different from each other, of course, but like sure. are out of fashion in a way with consumers, but also, but maybe even more with the big, big media corporate, big corporate media executives who are sort of n- narrowing the scope of what they're doing, nervous about advertisers, trying to sort of write their brands in some way. I mean, Fox is a, it's sort of an incredible, I mean, it's just sort of a different story. Like it's, I mean, it's an incredible management story, right? Like just, an unbelievably badly run institution, like like we sort of like that was one of the ways to read it. CNN, you know, trying to manage this brand in a like a very in a very very complicated political situation. Like I, yeah, I feel so like with Fox, this is basically self self inflicted. Well, Fo- Fox can't write another billion dollar check. Like they can, they could probably do that once in a decade. It, no, they're it gonna feels like I mean, they got another. They got another. They're going to write uh, Smartmatic. Smartmatic. Right. Presumably. Okay. I mean, the, the price has now been set. Right. Oh, all right. So, so it, but it, it feels like um, conflict as a business model is sort of like maybe on the way out or maybe we haven't seen the worst. I don't want to go than, too far, but and I think I'm sure Tucker will find a six, great success sort of narrow casting to people who love him and, and think like he does. And he'll have a smaller audience, but maybe make more money. It's 40 percent um, off its peak, but it's still a huge business. Like it's not going away. But I think people are more like most people are over it. Oh, uh, yeah, I wouldn't over over what over Fox out, News. Out, just being no uh, capitalizing on on outrage. Yeah, right. It's right. It's not going away, but it, it doesn't feel like it's the thing that consumers are crying out for yeah. right now. It's in yeah. a that's in a bear market. Yeah. All right, let John John let's put up uh, let's let's put up Ben's book one more time on screen, um, guys. This is the this is an unbelievable business story, and a lot of money was raised. A lot of money was lit on fire. A lot of interesting things have come out of that moment, and uh, Ben was the guy in the center of some of the best stories, the best anecdotes. My, you could take that off, John. Am I phrasing this right? Is that really like the 
the the crux of the book is that you were in the room for a lot of this stuff, and you really are telling the story in a way that most people have not heard it. I was in the room for some. Yeah, for sure. I was in the room for some, and the rest I really went and reported out. Right. Okay. All right. Everybody go ahead and grab a copy of Traffic. It's a great great summer read. We want to thank our guest, Ben, for being on the show today. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the live. We're checking out all your your comments and questions, and we appreciate that as well. Uh, And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Ben. Thank Thank you, you, Ben. Thank you, Michael. Good night.